We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Jill Bramble, President and Chief Executive Officer at National 4-H Council, the nonprofit partner to Cooperative Extensions 4-H Program. She's an experienced nonprofit leader and has dedicated more than 18 years of service to National 4-H Council, starting as a grant writer and rising through the ranks to join the executive leadership team in 2013. A fourth-generation 4-H'er from Maryland's Eastern Shore, Jill knows firsthand the life-changing impact of 4-H programs and volunteers. A champion of young people and their ability to drive change, she is motivated every single day to pay it forward and ensure the same opportunities are available for all youth. Jill has cultivated teams and organizations to grow the impact of their mission through sustainable social impact investments. Full disclosure, Jill, her husband, Scott, and two children, Nick and Jordan, are close family friends. What I appreciate most about you, Jill, and this is a long list of things, is your kindness. You're the true sense of good person. You don't talk badly about other people. You are a generous giver. And you're just super freaking cool. So welcome to ROG, Jill. Thank you so much, Shannon. And all of that goes right back at you, my friend, as well. Uh, Thank you. So would you mind just sharing a little bit of your background with us? I will, but your intro was pretty thorough. So I don't know if there's too much to add to that, but I will highlight a couple of things. Um, First, the fact that I grew up in very rural America on the eastern shore of Maryland, where there were limited resources. And we didn't grow up with much, but I was very fortunate to grow up with enough. 4-H was a big part of my childhood growing up. But getting into nonprofit was really kind of an accidental career. Um, And I say that because I didn't go to school um, to study nonprofit administration out of high school. It was not on my radar at all. But what I quickly learned coming out of college and starting work with the American Cancer Society was that when driven by a mission or driven by a purpose, um, fundraising and the ability to bring new resources and grow the resources for that mission meant that more people could be served, saved, or growth could happen. And I just love that. That fueled my Mm. passion at the time to fight cancer for a number of reasons. And as my kids grew older to the age of 4-H'ers, I realized all I had learned growing up in 4-H and I wanted to pay that forward. So it fueled another mission in me and I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to join National 4-H Council and really grow with the organization and help grow the impact of the mission. Mm, I love that. And you personally had that experience and and you and how much it helped you to become who you are today. And for those who are not 
already familiar with 4-H. Like everyone has heard it, but they may not even know like the 4-H stands for head, heart, hands, and health. But what else could you tell us about what 4-H is? Yeah, so many people know 4-H from the county fair. That's, we sometimes call that our end aisle display. Um, But that's just a fraction of what 4-H is. And I think to understand the true mission of 4-H, which is positive youth development, you have to go back 120 years to its founding. And it was really founded on the idea that young people are uniquely positioned to drive innovation and positive change in their communities. And at the time, the industry was agriculture, and there was a lot of new technology that was being developed by universities to help farmers increase production and increase economic mobility. But they had a hard time getting the adult farmers to adopt new technology. They were suspicious of it. They didn't really want to change. But young people would adopt it and they would try new things. And that's really the origins of 4-H. And so it became about technology transfer and embracing change and moving communities forward. Really just kind of fun story to illustrate that. There was a young boy named Marius Malgren a 4-H'er from Virginia. And at the time, they had developed pre-germinated corn seed at universities through research. Adults wouldn't use it. He tried it through his 4-H club, planted his corn that season, and ended up growing 10 times the amount of corn per acre than the adult counterparts. This is a young person. And the adults took notice and thought, Maybe I should try that new technology. And so that has happened over time. So today you see young people teaching adults how to use um, AI or computer technology or do things online in a safe way. And so that exists today. And we see the opportunity to just drive that forward. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for that. It's so it's amazing. And just would ask our listeners to look into it more. There'll be links in the show notes to learn more about 4-H. It's just a remarkable organization. So just going back to you and your your roots, like where are some of the ways that you have experienced generosity in your own career and where do you see it in the workplace? Yeah, really good. So You know, I feel so fortunate leading a nonprofit organization. 4-H is actually the largest youth development organization in this country in every single county that I get a front row seat to seeing generosity every single day, whether it's our donors that are investing millions into young people for their future, whether it's the half a million volunteers we have across this country that are giving their time to young people, or it's the educators, the 4-H educators that are in every county that give tirelessly as mentors to young people. So I feel so blessed to have that viewpoint every day. Um, But for me personally, I have also been benefiting from generosity in the workplace really since I started. Um, And that has been through mentors who have invested in me, who've given me opportunities probably before I was ready, but were willing to walk that pathway of growth for me. I think two Mm. examples stand out, both of which were CEOs at the time at the American Cancer Society and then at National 4-H Council when I joined. Both CEOs were men and they were later in their careers. And they really helped 
tell me, you know, if you are no good to yourself, you are no good to this organization. And that was kind of my first lesson in my mid-20s about self-care and creating boundaries. We weren't going to solve cancer overnight. As hard as I worked, I was not going to make that happen. So he really gave me the gift of self-care boundaries and being able to have life outside of work. And then it when did that happen, Jill? Like what was what was going on when he offered you that? It was in it was my orientation. It was in the first oh, really? first week of working for the Cancer wow. Society. We had the opportunity to sit down with the CEO and just ask questions, learn. And he offered that proactively. And it was a gift. And similarly at at National 4-H Council, Don Floyd, who was our CEO at the time, a dad himself, made it really clear that he wanted me to be able to focus on youth development in my own home, as well as bring my best to the workplace. And I was actually the very first remote worker at National 4-H Council, and that allowed me to integrate, you know, life and work. I don't think there's ever a balance, um, but it's an integration. And so I feel that same responsibility for many of our young moms and dads who are raising families and working at National 4-H Council that it's critically important. It was a, it was a generous act that I received. Um, and I want to make sure that continues. Yes. Oh my gosh. So what are some of the ways that you take that advice? Like what are ways that you are good to yourself? Cause I think when we think about being generous leaders, we very often, well, first we think about giving and in, in the case of 4-H, that is a good thing to do, right? Be philanthropic and find a cause and that you believe in and invest financially. We're also talking about how do we give of ourselves? And I don't know that we talk about giving back to ourselves enough, like that self-care that you're referring to. So I'm just curious, like what are some of the things that you do? Yeah, so I think it's the biggest is setting those boundaries, right? And really when you are off from work, you're truly off and you can unplug. And we're very transparent with that at work and we know we have to hold each other accountable for it. We try not to send emails in off work hours. Um, Even if it's helpful for me to get all of that stuff off my plate, it's not helpful on the receiving end to someone who may feel like they have to respond right away. So we try to create boundaries. Um, we, We certainly try to include children and families in the workplace if that's appropriate. We are a fully remote workforce Now, especially after COVID, we made that commitment because we heard loud and clear from our families that, you know, the commuting time was time they lost either working or with their families. We want our parents to be able to engage with their kids, but also set boundaries between the two. You know, it's constant, right? It's a marathon. You never actually achieve it. But it's like a muscle that we know we have to continue to work to make sure we have those boundaries. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, so important. And I think you were already so dedicated to your work, but now as the president and CEO, you know, you have more responsibility. I'm imagining even more travel, uh, more stakeholders, more like people that you feel responsible to. So I just, you know, think that recognizing 
you know, how you can still care for yourself so that you have enough to share with others is really an important piece. Did you find that shift in responsibility um, even more challenging? It is, and I'm still learning. So I'm still in my first 90 days. It's a little bit like sipping out of a fire hydrant, um, even though I'm not new to the organization and certainly not new to the mission. And I can, I am energized by the work, which is great. I absolutely love it. But then that also means time management and that allocation of time, which is limited, is super important. So it's a work in progress and I'm figuring it out. I'm very, very fortunate to have people in my life, both personally and in the workplace who are really honest with me and aren't afraid to give me feedback or push back. Um, To me, that's, I'm grateful for that. It's not always easy. No, not at all. Like in growth, I think it's a a need that we all have, but it's, it comes at a price, right? It's uh, like one of our guests call it lessons earned from, you know, and like the, through your life experience. And it's fortunate that you personally love a good adventure. (laughs) You You like skydiving, hella skiing, you know, you're just a very adventurous person. So I imagine this is this is quite an adventure that you're on right now. It is. It might be the toughest one yet, but I'm I am very excited by it and the mission is so critical that it really gives me the drive that I think is definitely necessary in this role. Oh, for sure. So one of the things that you mentioned a couple of times is that science of positive youth development to set our nation up to thrive. And, you know, as 4-H being the largest youth development organization nationally. So tell me more about that. Like, how can our listeners understand why it's so important to invest in youth for our future? I mean, I think there's some obvious ways like raising good children, but like, what are the ways that as a 4-H executive that you think about investing in youth? So, You're right, Shannon, that positive youth development, it is a science. And I think there are times when our society, it's understandable, looks at the youth development organizations, which the big five are 4-H, Boys and Girls Clubs of America, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. We are all youth development organizations. Um, As kind of nice camping opportunities, after-school programs, county fair. It's kind of a nice to do, but there's actually science behind it. And it's critically important to a young person thriving. And that science is, it's in the out-of-school time. It allows young people to self-direct and find their spark or what interests them by trying a lot of different things. Um, It does that alongside of a caring adult and having a long-term caring adult that is different from a parent is one of the critical markers of youth development science. And then the third is allowing a young person to practice leadership today. So we don't see young people as leaders at some point in the future. We're not teaching them. We are giving them safe places and opportunities to practice that leadership so they are ready when they, at each phase, really, of their development. Um, so, and that's based on a lot of brain science. It, it really comes from the point of young people, all young people have potential, that they're not problems to be fixed, 
but they all have potential, which is a different starting point when you think of young people as assets, not problems to be fixed. So in 4-H, we're really focused on what we're seeing in the marketplace today, which is technology is transforming jobs at record speed, and we need young people to be prepared for that innovation and that change. Um, over the last 10 years, the, the population has become increasingly unprepared to meet the workforce needs. There are 10 million vacant jobs today. And what we hear from corporate leaders is that the young people entering the workforce aren't prepared with the life skills needed to succeed. So the resilience, the leadership, the decision-making, the ability that they will fail, but they can reset their goals and not be broken by that. Um, those life skills are a core of that youth development science. That's what we see emerge. That's unbelievable. And so for people listening who can identify individuals in their own families and their own workplaces, their teams, because I think, you know, without any of these developments that you referred to, these individuals become adults and now they're in the working world and they still may not have that foundational ability to be resilient and bounce back from mistakes and be receptive to feedback. So like, what would you say to those who are either doing that work themselves or trying to coach and develop others who they recognize need that kind of help? Yeah. So I think a couple of things come to mind. One is um, parents can't do it on their own. No matter how much you love and want the best for your kids, you cannot do it on your own. And so looking for those opportunities for young people, for your kids to be engaged in out of school time is critical, whether it's through sports, through its community clubs, through arts and culture. There are a lot of different ways. It's not just youth development, but that is critical. Second, and I say this as a parent, all of us want our kids to succeed. And so we go at great lengths for them not to fail. And we want them to be happy and we want it all to be perfect. Well, once you enter the workforce or even in life, that's not reality. And so I often say that my experience in 4-H taught me that it's okay to fail. You compete. You don't always win. You don't always get a trophy, a participation trophy. You fail, but then there's a caring adult alongside of you thinking about how do you reset your goals? How do you do it differently? How do you try harder or reset expectations? And so that process of failing, resetting, retrying, creates resilience that I think is so critical. So it's hard to say to parents, let your kids fail, right? But we want to do that safely because that's a really important life skill that builds resilience that they'll need later in their life to tackle big issues. If people listening are thinking, oh gosh, I missed the chance. I think I kind of swooped in and caught my child a little too soon and I didn't really let them experience that kind of failure. Like it's not too late because, you know, we can, we're always growing and developing. And I just love this idea about how this, like alongside a caring adult, like somebody who's not your parent. So I think for also for us listening to think about like, who are the people that we could invest ourselves in? And it might just be a neighbor. It could be somebody in your community 
somebody at school and, uh, you know, maybe a, a niece or nephew or somebody who you could really believe in so that these young people feel understood and that it's okay to fail. It's so important. I mean, many of us, when you ask, you know, influential people in our lives, it's a teacher, it's a neighbor, it's someone at church, it's an aunt or an uncle. Certainly parents play that critical role, but it's not enough. So when you think about the return on generosity, and like I said, kindness is one of the words that I associate with you. So I know that you give to give, like you really want to help people. You want to be a positive force for good. Um, but there's also something that we get for that, right? There's the joy and the fulfillment and like feeling like we are a part of something bigger, right? So like, how would you describe what the return on generosity is for you? Oh, well, I, I tell you, for me, it's the fuel that keeps me going. I mean, I need that. And um, I know you and I both share an appreciation for gratitude. And I think, Shannon, it was your gratitude journal that we were so fortunate to receive. But then I was able to gift that to all of our associates at work. You know, I really am interested in this idea of creating a culture of gratitude in the workplace because I think it's a different mindset. It it immediately positions your actions in thinking of others, in being starting from a place of gratitude with colleagues, with your customers, with donors, you know, whomever your stakeholders are in the workplace. When you come at it from a place of gratitude, that's a different starting place. And of course, we all have the hassles. We all have the really bad, hard days, hard decisions. But it's a different vantage point. And it's Michael J. Fox who said, gratitude makes optimism sustainable. And I love that because in a world where it feels like it's on fire, I mean, we have very real issues that we are dealing with globally. And especially working in a youth development organization, that can feel heavy to a generation of young people who've never been through an economic downturn or um, major conflict between countries, it can feel really heavy. So I think creating um, a culture of gratitude, uh, driving towards optimism is critical for young people to um, see a future for themselves. I love that. What are some of the practical things that you do to create that culture? Well, number one, I, I try to lead by example. I, you know, I've grown up through this organization. So I, I lead a lot from instinct and what I believe. And I think at the end of the day, I am an authentic leader. I am who I am. And if I can be in service to this organization, to our associates and to the mission, I am all in. But I will never be anyone I'm not. I'm not here to build my brand to get to my next step. It really is about the people and um, the mission. So I think, you know, it's in everything that we do, that we start with young people in the center. So when we're trying to solve really tough business decisions, are we thinking about young people and those 4-Hers in the center of the equation or our associates or other stakeholders? So I think it's just being really intentional and it's not 
rocket science to just serve, be grateful, be authentic, Mm -hmm. be transparent. To me, those are the basic building blocks and our success will come from that culture. Awesome. And something that I'm hearing when you're saying that, Jill, is like park your ego Right, that it's not about you. It's not about your empire and your. The, I mean, you know, people want stuff, and some people want like a title, and they want authority and all of that. And it's, I think it's okay to want that stuff. It just like put it in perspective, or kind of put it in the proper order of like being. Like I love the whole be do have right. Like be who you are, do what's authentic to being that way, and then it's fine to want to have stuff, but just don't make that the leading kind of catalyst or reason why you do something. So I think I see that in your work too. That's definitely my truth. And I think people come to the workplace for many, many different reasons. And I certainly don't judge that, but I go back to another wonderful mentor I had, Ken Hicks, who was a board member of ours for years. And he is a CEO and he, he, was asked by an interviewer at Forbes, um, what was your greatest career accomplishment? And he was with his associates at the time. And he said, he turned to his workforce and he said, how many of you have grown in your role or responsibility while I've been leading? And about 90% raised their hand. And he said, that's my greatest accomplishment, helping other people grow. And I just love that viewpoint. I think it's less about me and it's more about the impact that I can have in this job. And I'm learning. Believe me, I have a long way to go, but that's where, that's my North Star. Um, And I think it's critical. I think we're always going to get results in whatever we focus on. So if that's what we're focusing on, I mean, we're inevitably going to make some progress, maybe, maybe even really significant progress. But I think like setting our sights on that, our hearts on that. And that whole, like we grow and we give, right. That's, that's really what it is. It's like the way to grow. And I don't just mean intellectually, but I mean, as a human being, the catalyst to joy, I deeply believe is through giving through generosity and connection. And just knowing that the things that we do matter and that we're helping someone. And even if it's one person, but in some cases it's, you know, all of the people who are, positively benefiting from that one person, right? I think we can we can think about that ripple effect too. Without doubt. I mean, as I think of, you know, the mental health challenges that are right in front of this generation of young people, the statistics are astounding. 42% of young people feel persistently sad or hopeless. That's almost half of our youth population feels sad and hopeless. And one of the things I'm so proud of is in the the longitudinal research that we have done with 4-H, a big part of 4-H is giving back and engaging in your community. So making a difference locally. We're not just changing ourselves, but we're giving back. That's a core part. And so I don't think that it is just happenstance that in that research, we found that 4-H-ers were two and a half more likely to feel connected to others, participate in community service, and report living life with intentionality and purpose. And it's huge. And that comes from that feeling of giving back. It's not just about bettering myself. It's now using those skills and what I've learned to make a difference in my community. Oh my gosh. 
That's that's wonderful. What a great resource for people and a way for them to feel connected and less sad and hopeless. Um, what else have you learned from those studies? I know you're a very research-based organization. So one of the things that we're, we're really thinking about is young people being ready for the future, not just with the marketable job skills, but also those life skills and that feeling of connection. So we know that um, our 4-H youth um, 75% of them feel that that experience has helped them make a decision about college and career readiness. They've identified what sparks their interests, what they want to pursue, and then that that feeling of being connected. So those 4-Hers are giving back to their community four times that of their peers in other organizations. So we know it's a critical critical point. We want to grow that. We want to engage more kids. And I think our country needs it more than ever. Mm, Totally agree. So one of the things that I know that you are involved with is you do like an associate engagement survey and you ask your participants, your teams, like, you know, how do you feel about working here? You know, what is that like for you? I mean, what are some of the, what's the feedback that you get from your own associates? Yeah. So you know, we have things that we score really high and we have areas that we have a lot of work to do. Um, so we've not figured it out yet. Um, number one, our associates always rank very high the mission and the people that they work with. What is not as high and what has decreased really in the past three years is that engagement, what we would call an engagement score of our associates feeling engaged. I think part of that is the environment coming out of COVID. We are all remote. That's new to have a 100% remote workforce. And we're figuring out what that looks like to stay connected to each Mm -hmm. other, to the mission, it's a, it's a lot harder to be empathetic and really connected in an email. So we're figuring those things out. Um, we, we certainly haven't arrived yet. We have a long way to go in terms of my, my hope. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that because that's very humble of you to talk about where you're growing. But I think that that emphasis on the mission that people really feel connected to and that purpose, like I think that return on generosity they feel and that they like the individuals that they work with. It's the kind of work that attracts likely people with similar values and interests and just that that service mindset. And like, it's such a tangible way to know how you're making a difference. And like, you get to see the the lives like take take a turn. You get to read the the results from the surveys and hear from the young individuals that you're supporting directly. So that's just amazing. So for people who are listening to this and are like, this sounds great. How do I get involved? Like, what are the ways that people can get involved? Like go from like the least to something even more significant? Yeah, so a number of things. One is for any of the information or more information on what I've talked about today, you can go to 4-h.org and there is a lot um, to learn about 4-H in your local community or how to engage nationally. We have also just launched a new e-learning platform called Clover and that we're super excited about. It's a way for young people to engage with 4-H regardless of where they live. 
through activities that are developed by all of our university partners. We have 110 university partners. So that's very hands-on activities in computer science, all different areas of health, STEM, uh, civic engagement. For corporate audience, we have a, a number of partners who have thought about their needs in the workplace and how partnering with the largest youth development organization can create a diverse talent pipeline or double down on topic areas that are important. So for example, Google has partnered with us to deliver over 90 uh, computer science engaging activities through Clover, and that has helped us scale. We've we've been able to reach a million kids with computer science through their partnership. So it's it's tremendous. It's at scale. It's quality, and um, there's a lot of ways to get involved. That's wonderful. Yes, and they can get involved in their local chapters and donate. So please take a look at 4-h.org so they can, you know, you can learn more about that. So I've got a couple of key takeaway tips and that I'd love for you to add to what I've got here. So one of them is around find your spark. When you said find your spark, I just thought to myself, what a brilliant thing that all of us can do. (laughs) And just think about how you can find your spark. You talked about gratitude and creating a culture of gratitude and how gratitude makes optimism sustainable so also being optimistic, like what's possible. A big thing that I heard in in your what you shared with us today is about investing in young people and youth, right? Like find a way to make that difference, to be that adult who can walk alongside this young person and to believe in them and help them recover from their failure. And that was another thing is about like kind of seeking opportunities to fail, not intentionally to fail, but stretching yourself enough So that, you know, like, I kind of feel like if you're not feeling at all, you're not trying hard enough. So, right. So like looking for opportunities to fail um, and then giving back to your community, find a way to make a contribution, because that's one of the ways that you're going to get that return on generosity. Anything else that you would add? No, I think you nailed it, Shannon. I think at the end of the day, for me, it is for all of us, look for ways to make a difference in the lives of young people not by helping them or necessarily just protecting them, but helping them find their spark, connect to their community. That gives them purpose. It gives them hope. And to me, that's what's going to change the trajectory for their generation. So beautiful. Well, thank you for your friendship, most importantly, and for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.